Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project with your host Mick Spears. We bring you thought-provoking guests and topics every week to challenge your thinking about leadership. Our aim is to help you become the leader that you wish you always had as we learn together and lead together. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Leadership Project. I'm greatly honoured today to be joined by Belinda Morgan. Belinda is the author of a newly released book called Solving the Part-Time Puzzle. How to decrease your hours, increase your impact and thrive in your part-time role. She's a flexible work consultant and she helps individuals who are looking to carve out a career using part-time work as an approach and flexibility in their lifestyle and she also helps leaders of teams that are leading flexible teams. And you know right now that there's lots of debate out there around flexibility in the workplace, around is a four-day work week better? There's so many things to unpack here. So I'm really excited for our discussion today. Now, Belinda, as we get started, please, what I'd like you to do is introduce yourself and talk to us about your background and what led you into this kind of work in the first place. Thanks, Mick, and thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. So interesting how I got into this field in the first place. I think it stems right back to when I was a graduate, actually. And one of my first roles was as an auditor in one of the big four accounting firms. And even back then, as I entered the workforce I in that particular environment, I saw so many people around me working really, really crazy hours and trying to fit their life in around the edges and kind of, you know, I don't think we use the term burnout much then, but almost burning out in the process. And way back then, even I thought, I'm not sure that this is how I want to work and live. And so a year in, I sought out a different firm actually and moved firms primarily for that reason. I just wanted, I liked the work that I was doing. I liked the people I was working with, but I just wanted a firm that offered a bit more balance. And so I did that and moved to a more of a mid-tier firm that was focused on giving people a bit more work-life balance. So from right back then, I was really interested in this idea of how can I do interesting, exciting work that I love and have a life at the same time, not have work consume my whole life. And so that was great at the time. It allowed me the kind of flexibility I was interested in in my 20s around chunks of time off to travel and just not working that big kind of 50 to 70 hour week. And then specifically the topic of part-time became relevant for me after I had kids. And I went back into the role I was in, which was by then a leadership role in a consulting firm and went back three and a half days a week. And whilst the firm that I was in were really, really supportive of the idea, the systems really weren't in place. No one was trying to make it difficult for me, but it was just hard to do it well, to do a leadership role well and do it part-time. And so that's when I got really interested in this specific form of flexibility and thought, what can we do to get better at this? There's just, yes, absolutely parents and you know mothers in particular returning from parental leave are interested in getting this right, but there's a whole range of other people in the workforce as well who want or need to work part-time and we're just not doing it very well in organisations. So that's how I got interested. All right. Very good. So tell me a little bit more about you individually. What makes that flexibility important to you? For me, absolutely. As I said, the part-time piece, the initial driver, one of the main drivers was family and having young children. But it's not the only reason I'm interested in it. I just think there's so much that life has to offer. You know, I wrote this book recently, as we just mentioned, and having the time to spend on that or to spend on travel or hobbies or whatever it is, I just think it's really important that we all can make the kind of time to do things that enrich our lives and that we find interesting. And sometimes that is work. And if we're really lucky, work, you know, feel 
fills that bucket for some of us as well. But for me, it's just about having that variety in my life and being able to spend time with my kids, but also spend time on other interesting projects, spend time on travel as well. All right. I'd like to go backwards a little bit first and talk about maybe that first culture that you're talking about. We don't have to mention the company's name or anything, but I think everyone's been in this situation. So one thing is about perceptions and visibility, et cetera, et cetera. And I have personally worked in companies like this as well, where it's almost like a badge of honor. Like if your car's in the car park before the boss and your car's the last one to leave the office, that oh, you must be the hardest working person in the company. And it becomes this celebrated thing. How did we end up in that situation and what do you think are the limitations of that? How we ended up there is an interesting question. You might have seen, Mick, there's a lot of talk around the four-day work week, as you mentioned at the moment. And as part of that, people will often kind of reference back to the industrial revolution as when this idea of a five-day work week came into play and this idea that, you know, that's how many hours we all need to work. So I think that structure initially has informed how much we're working. But this idea of overworking or the more hours I sit in the office, the more dedicated I am, I'm not really sure exactly how that's come into play over the last, I think it's the last 50 years or so in these office environments, but absolutely it's got its limitations. And if I think right back to that environment I was in, as we mentioned, what I saw was a lot of people around me knowing that they needed to do that FaceTime to be considered an excellent graduate employee. But the flip side was you'd then see them doing other things during the day, you know, going for long coffees or, you know, doing whatever it was. We didn't have Facebook back then, but, you know, going on the computer and just wasting time basically during the day because you knew you had to be there for so many hours. And it's just not possible to stay focused and keep working for, you know, 12, 14 hours a day. So that was one thing I saw that just didn't really make any sense to me. I just wanted to get my job done, focus on it and go home and do something else. But the other thing I saw, and this was not specific to this firm by any means, it's common across professional services, is partners just really seeming like they were quite overworked, overwhelmed, looking older than they were before their time, just from this idea of having worked so many hours for so long to get to this point. And some of them loved it. And we're happy to do it. But a lot of people, I just don't think that environment works well for. So there's two things I'm taking away there is the first one is the question, are we working hard or are we working smart? And if we're working a 12 hour, sometimes a 16 hour day, give yourself an honest scorecard at the end of the day. Were you really that productive for 12 hours straight? And I'm going to say not a chance, right? So you are getting distracted and not to dismiss the need for social interaction in the workplace. Of course, go and have a coffee and all of these things. But how much of your time is drifting versus being prolific in your output is the first thing that came. And the second thing that came to mind there is the health impact. So you're talking about looking at senior leaders who were living that life and it was starting to visibly show on their physical and mental health is what I'm hearing, but I don't want to extrapolate too far. Tell us more about this health impact. Mm, absolutely. And that is what I was seeing. And I think just if you're spending so many hours in the office and there's so much pressure on you, you don't have the time to look after your well-being as much as would be ideal. So, you know, what I saw, some people, as I said, were thriving in this environment and at least managing it fairly well. And so we're able to find the time to, you know, get up at five and exercise before work and eat healthily and, you know, switch off on weekends and go and do things with their family and friends. But a lot of people struggled in that kind 
kind of environment to be able to set those boundaries when there's so much work and such high expectations from clients and colleagues, it can make it a lot more difficult to do that. And so then, as I said, the, the health implications were quite visible uh, for some of the people who had been there a long time. And absolutely, you could see the stress as well for some people. So yeah, it's really, really interesting one. And it was just, and still is, I think, so common in workplaces. That was just the norm. If you wanted to be in a high performing environment as a graduate, and I think, you know, to some degree still today, that's just what you had to expect. And I think that's what I just found unusual and thought we needed to challenge. Very good. One thing that pops into my mind there is is just, I think we all know this, but just to double down on it, that a healthier, both physically and mentally employee is a happier employee. A happy employer is a more engaged employee. A more engaged employee is a more productive employee. And it's better for the person. It's better for the company in the end. I want you to bounce off that. Tell us about the positive impact for the business. So we've spoken a bit about the individual. What are the business benefits of giving people this? Well, take a step back away from the flexibility for the moment. What are the business benefits of not having a culture where people are celebrated for working a 12, 16 hour day? Great question, Mick. So lots and lots of business benefits. And absolutely, it's so important to point this out because we think, yes, it's nice to help people look after their well-being. But as you say, it's not just nice, it's really important for businesses as well. So firstly, absolutely, this idea of working so many hours a day and getting more done is not, it doesn't really ring true. There's so much research that shows that there's diminishing returns after a certain number of hours per day and different studies have shown different things. But you know, there's a lot of research that shows after six hours a day of work, we're just not that productive for the rest of the hours we might work in a day. And there's a really a book that I love called Humans Are Not Robots by an Australian guy, Robert Hawkins. And he talks about this analogy up front of, yes, a robot or a machine, you know, the more hours it can work per day, the more it gets done. Whereas humans are just not like that. That's not how we work. So productivity is a big one. And, you know, one of the way that that's being ways that that's being proven out at the moment across the globe is the concept of the four day work week where employers are asking employees to be as productive in less time. So the concept is for listeners who aren't so familiar with the technicalities of how it works is that you achieve 100% of the productivity you were achieving before and you get paid 100% of the salary that you were being paid when you work five days on the proviso that you can get it all done in the four days. So it's kind of 80% of the time, 100% of the pay, 100% of the outputs. And that's being proven time and time again across the globe as you know even big organizations like Unilever and Microsoft have been doing experiments successfully showing that you can get the same or even more done in less time. So the productivity is absolutely a big one. Another one, you know, very topical at the moment, of course, is just the idea that employees want more and more flexibility that, you know, one silver lining of an awful three years of the pandemic, that flexibility has become much more of a hot topic. And if you're looking to attract and retain the best talent, you need to be open to thinking about how you can help them work flexibly in ways that suit their lifestyle and what they want and need. And then the third one I'll mention is around diversity and inclusion. So right up front, I mentioned there's all sorts of people, you know, we often think when we think of working less hours or part-time work, we think of working mothers as the main people who are after that. But there's so many people who want or need it for all sorts of reasons, whether that's, you know, a disability that precludes them from working full-time, skilled experience employees who want to take a phased approach to retirement, people who are on working visas from overseas who have amazing skills and experience, but their visa limits the number of hours they can work per week. So there's all sorts of reasons for people wanting or needing this. And it's in companies' best interest to go out and attract the best talent in the market, no matter how much they want to work. 
Yeah, so I love that you've brought up this point about inclusivity in the workplace and how the flexibility can drive that and around this ability to attract and retain talent because we do have a very competitive marketplace at the moment looking for the right people in the right jobs. And I love that you pointed out that it's not just for working mothers, which I think is wonderful, of course, but it's also for working fathers. It's also for other people that might have mobility disadvantage in terms of being able to get to and from an office. It could be a cognitive issue where they might have different difficulty for concentrating for more than let's say 90 minutes at a time or whatever the case may be. So the more inclusive we make the workplace, the better it is for everyone. And it can, flexibility can become that differentiator for you to attract and retain the right talent in your team. I want to come back to the productivity. I'm going to put an analogy to you and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. And that, I think about this all the time. The analogy or the metaphor is about a Olympic athlete, an Olympic athlete or a high performance athlete. They might be a rugby player, whatever the case may be. They do not train 24-7 every day of the year, they run in peaks. They don't even perform at 100% of their capability every time they train. Monday might be 70% run-throughs and you know Tuesday might be a rest day, Wednesday might be weightlifting, Thursday might be running at race pace. You know, they manage their effort, they manage their downtime and they manage their week in a way that achieves maximum performance towards the outputs that they're trying to achieve. And yet, in the workplace, we seem to have a mentality that it's like, all right, game time, on, you need to be 100% on 100% of the time. Should we be taking more of an Olympic athlete approach to the workplace? Absolutely. And I love that analogy. And I think it's interesting Olympic athletes, I suppose part of the reason they're doing this is that their physical health is absolutely critical to their performance on the job. And whilst those of us who sit at a desk a lot of the day, we might say it's not as critical as an Olympic athlete, it still is more critical than we realise, I think, having that optimum health and coming to work feeling good and feeling like you've got the energy to do your job. So I think there's a lot we can learn from that approach, even if the physicality isn't as essential, it still is so important and more important than lots of us think about. Yeah. So I don't think we need to go completely to the Olympic model, at least as a leader, have that in mind that your people cannot and will not be their best self if you expect them to sprint at 100% every minute of the workday. All right. Now I want to take a step back before we get to the more modern concepts. You and I lived through this. We come from a similar era. The first thing I saw in flexibility in the workplace was people taking literally part-time jobs as in, I'm going to job share. I'm going to do three days a week and someone else is going to do two days a week, et cetera, et cetera. What I saw a lot in that, my lived experience, I saw a lot of people that took a three day a week job or a four day a week job. They took a 60% salary or an 80% salary and yet they ended up doing 100% of the work or, or sometimes you'd know that Thursday's supposed to be their off day and yet all of a sudden they're either here, either from a personal expectation out of pride that they wanted to be there or their manager was insisting, oh, I'm really sorry, can you come in this Thursday? Tell us about what we learnt from that era when people were attempting a part-time job. But in my view, for most people, it kind of didn't click and it kind of didn't work. Tell us about your experience there. It's a really common experience, the one you're describing, Mick, even today. So yes, we saw that as part-time work became more of a thing driven primarily by working mothers. As we've talked about, you know, whilst there's so many other reasons, working mothers have done an amazing job of driving the part-time work landscape to where it is today. And I think this issue of working, you know, full-time hours, but on part-time pay is still very present in the workplace today. And what we've learned and what we need to learn from it is that even organisations with the best intent need to have the right systems and structures 
structures in place to set part-time work up for success. You can't just say, go out and do it and do your best, which I think is what we were doing back then and what many organizations are still doing today. And so one thing that's really critical to help avoid that scenario is this idea of role scoping. So if you're now working the same role that you were working five days, you're now working at three days or 60% of the time, how do we carve off 40% of the work? And do we, you know, make it a job share and give that 40% to another person? Do we analyze it all and actually go, well, 10% of the work you were doing actually isn't even that critical anymore. It's just always been in that job. Let's just ditch that work. Well, let's look around us and see who would really benefit from the opportunity to work on that project or work with that client in your team or the broader organization and delegate it out to them. It's a win-win. They get the career development opportunity from picking up that piece of work and you're not doing it anymore. So one thing we really need to get better at is helping people scope a role so that it is truly part-time. And at the same time, make sure bits and pieces like career development and working on the most exciting projects don't end up in that 40% that gets shifted off. So that's a common trap that happens as we do this role scoping piece that you suddenly are doing the same core delivery work, but the extra bits and pieces that help you grow your career get carved off because you feel like you don't have the time. So that's one big thing that we've learned. And then the second, I would say to your point around personal expectations is just around boundary setting. And I know that's such an overused term at the moment, but there is a degree to which we need to manage ourselves. Yes, we need our organizations to set us up for success and we need our managers to support us, but we also need to manage ourselves. And one of the top tips I give people when they're struggling with this is get really clear on your personal why. Why are you working part-time or why do you want to work part-time in the first place? Really clear on that. And then every time you're tempted to overwork or you know do something that's not essential on your day off, just ask yourself the question, what am I saying no to that's important to me when I say yes to doing this piece of work? All right. I want to break that down into two parts. One is the business part and then the personal part, and we'll separate the two and go deeper one at a time. So let's start at the business side. So the things I heard there is that this is no longer about I work three days a week and I take a 60% pay and then turn around and realize that I did a 100% job. This is now, if we talk about four-day work week, it's about 100% pay for 100% output. You just happen to do it in a more flexible structure. But what I'm hearing from you here is in our early days, our, I'll call it experiments with flexible work were exactly that, they're experiments. And we didn't have the right structure and processes in place that made it work. So if we've got leaders out there, they might be business owners out there that have been thinking about this. They've been going, yeah, let's do this thing. Let's do this four-day work week. What advice can you give them about what structure, processes, rituals, whatever you want to call it to make it work? Yeah, great question, Mick. And I think it's really important just to pause for a moment and think about the distinction between someone working part-time in an organization where everyone else works full-time. And that's where this scenario of role scoping is critical. If you're working three days and being paid 60% while everyone else around you is working full-time or most people, this role scoping piece is critical. And there are many organizations who still run that model. That's probably much more common at the moment still than the four-day week versus we've talked about this idea of the four-day week where everyone in the organization now works four days and we deliver the same amount as we were before and we try and do it more efficiently. And so I think just really important, it can get quite confusing when we're talking about the two to be clear that they are two different models. And then to your question around the four-day week and how, if we were interested in that, what are the important considerations in terms of making it a success is an excellent one. And I do know so many people I speak to are just hearing and seeing this idea of the four-day week and thinking, "Hmm, how do you do it? How can it actually work? And what I see people doing that really 
really sets them up for success is a few things. So the first is around getting really clear on what are the outcomes that we deliver in our roles and in our teams. Because when we're thinking about any form of flexible work, really what's critical to get clear on is what are the outcomes that we deliver that we're accountable for? Because that helps us measure success. If we can deliver those same outcomes and know that we've done it because we're measuring it clearly in less time, that's absolutely critical versus the old management style of, I know you're sitting at a desk X number of hours a day because I can see you sitting at that desk and that's how I measure whether you're doing a good job. So the first thing is you need to be able to measure your outcomes. And for some teams like a sales team, that can be quite easy because they have sales targets. And if we can meet those same sales targets in less time, we know we're nailing it versus other forms of work. Let's say you're a receptionist. That might be harder to get clear on the outcomes up front. So you want to make sure that each individual and the team clear on outcomes. So that's one. Second one is as a leader, you want to shift towards, if you're not there already, a really collaborative style of leadership and get the team involved in, if this is our objective, if we all want to have one day off a week, how can we do this? Let's come up with some ideas. What are we doing now that's not the best use of our time? What kind of meetings are we doing? How many meetings are we doing a week? And what are your ideas on how we could reduce some of that meeting time? Because that's one of the biggest areas of opportunity for most teams and organizations. How can we reduce the number of hours that we're spending in meetings? So getting everybody's ideas and getting some agreement on, okay, we're going to try this. Instead of doing a weekly one-hour team meeting, we're going to do a fortnightly half-hour team meeting. And all those updates that we used to give each other during the meeting, we're just going to do a quick email instead. Whatever everyone's ideas are on how we reduce that, we all agree and we work towards it. So that's the second thing. Just The first was outcomes. The second is this collaborative style of leadership and getting everyone's ideas on the table and getting some agreements in place around how we're going to become more productive. Meetings just being one example of that. And then I think the third thing is around who covers people's work or interacts with their stakeholders on their day off. So in the four-day week model, a lot of people assume everybody has every Friday off from now on. But the way most, if not all organizations run it is that we all agree to have different days off and we work out what suits everyone and come to an agreement around Mick has Monday off and Belinda has Wednesday off. And so as a leader, what you need to be thinking about is, of course, firstly, how do we come to an agreement that suits everyone? But secondly, how do we get really good at handing over and making sure that stakeholders, whether that's customers or internal stakeholders, know who they can contact on someone's day off. They know when that day off is for one of their key contacts and it becomes quite seamless for anyone who we need to interact with. Okay. So I'm hearing lots of powerful things there. I want to unpack it a little bit one at a time, Belinda. The first one is the shifting from clock watching where time at desk is equals productivity versus output equals productivity and, and getting to that point where you can measure the output and agree on what it looks like. And I want to come back to something you said earlier, which I think needs to play a part in this and get your input on this. You said before, what are you saying no to when you say yes to this? I think that's part of that output. It's time to stop and and think about in the business, what are all of the things that we do that we're doing it because we've always done it that way. But in reality, those activities are time sponges that if you critically assessed it, you would go, actually, why do we do that? And to cut your activities down to the more prolific things, the first thing is to get a red pen out and go, what are the things that I do every week that don't add value anymore? So I can spend more time putting my mental prowess towards the things that do add value. So what role do you think that plays doing a prioritization first before you start measuring how we're going to measure the output here. 
Yeah, I think it's a hugely important role. And I work with an organization called Beamable quite a lot who actually have a software solution that helps you do this because they believe and have seen how critical it is for so many things, but, you know, particularly getting flexible work right for as an individual, each of us to sit down and pull apart our roles and analyze, okay, if I spend X hours a week on this, how important is it? How much impact does it have? You know, almost do that, that kind of impact versus effort matrix and think about, you know, if, is this having a lot of impact? And how much effort do I put into it? And if you've got things in the low impact, high effort box, how do we kind of move them on and ditch them if possible, or at least spend less time on them? So absolutely, it's critical. And nearly every individual and team I work with can find some gold in just that little process of what are we spending our time on and what things can we take that red pen to, as you put it, and just get rid of them. Yeah, I love this. So high effort, low impact are the things that need to go. Some questions that might help with that is just to look at the activities that you do and ask yourself, is that just busy being busy or is it busy being productive is one question they ask. And in that, I'd ask, if I didn't do that, what would happen? What would happen if I just didn't do that this week? And if the answer is shrug your shoulders, then that's going to tell you something. And then if it is important, you could ask yourself, oh, what if I did more of that thing? You might stumble across something that's really impactful that you're not spending an enough time on. So rob yourself away from those things that are high effort, low impact and focus your efforts in on the things that are low effort, high impact or multipliers. And then we can start having a conversation about, okay, what does productivity look like when we look at a four day week or a flexible approach? How does that sit with you, Belinda? 100%. I think the other thing that comes to mind as you replay that is a leadership capability that we haven't talked about that's really critical for leading flexible teams is this idea of helping people get clear on purpose or kind of purpose-led leadership. And how do you know if something's high impact? You know, because it's really aligned with what your team or your organization is here to do. So leaders getting really clear and helping their teams get really clear on the purpose of their roles and how that ties into the big picture of what the organization does really is helpful and plays a big part in this analysis too. We speak a lot about purpose-led leadership here on the show. So you're going to be having people in the audience clapping and cheering when you said that, Belinda. So asking yourself the questions against those activities again, is this moving the needle towards our purpose and our mission? Yes or no? Are the things that I did today aligned to our current five strategic priority priorities? Yes or no? All of these things can help you sharpen in on that. The second one I heard from you then was about engagement and I loved this. So instead of the leader sitting in a dark room and architecting the perfect four-day work week, pull your team together. How do you think this might work? I just love that, Belinda. And that can apply to all things like, okay, we've got a priority project this week. Instead of telling people how to do it, ask them, how do you think we should do this? And what do you think the challenges will be? If you ask the right questions, you're going to get people engaged and they are going to support what they create. So if they co-architect the four-day work week or the flexible work week, they are then going to support it because they felt like they were part of it. How does one start with that, Belinda? How does one start the conversation with the team? And are there any kind of tips for running workshops or how do you do that to get that conversation going? Great question. And I think you can have, you know, there's a kind of spectrum on, you can just start with an open slate and, you know, let's just have a think about how we could all be more productive. But I do think having some tools or a framework to run a conversation with your team can be really helpful. So I think starting off with this role analysis piece that we touched on just a moment ago can be a really helpful starting point for a conversation with a team. Before we get into thinking about how we work together, let's all have a bit of a think about what we do individually and what adds the 
the most value and what doesn't. And then some teams I work with do something called a team charter, which I think could be really helpful and different teams will shape it differently. But for example, some things on the team charter might be how does each individual in the team want to work? What works best for them? What's the one or two things that they really need in terms of flexibility to manage their week and their work and their life as well as possible? So get really clear on, you know, John in the team, he's going to have Wednesdays off. Also on Fridays, he's going to leave at four o'clock to pick up his kids and he'll make up that hour somewhere else potentially. And someone else in the team might like to go to a lunchtime yoga class. And it sounds very detailed, but just being really clear on what's important to each other and capturing that somewhere can help you manage really well. So building that into the conversation, having conversation about the tech we use and how we keep in touch with each other when it's not someone's work day or work hours is really important too. So a tool a lot of people use, or this isn't a tech tool, it's more just an agreement, is when someone is not at work, we won't expect them to be on emails, but we will all agree that we're happy to be sent a text message. If something urgent comes up on my day off, I'm happy to call in and talk to a client or answer a quick question if it's really, really critical and you can contact me via text message. So thinking about how we communicate and what tech tools we use, whether that's a text message or internal messaging or email and where they're best suited to a scenario can be really important. So that's a couple of things. Yeah, so I'm hearing almost like a team charter, agreeing the rules of engagement and go, okay, this is the way the perfect week would look like. But in the event that curveballs come, this is how we're going to handle those curveballs. This is how we're going to communicate with each other. This is how we're going to respect each other. So it feels like a almost like a team charter or some kind of co-design rules of engagement. Yeah, absolutely. And so coming up with a charter like that in the first place, and you can put anything you want on there, whatever works for your team to help you work flexibly together. But also after you've created it, building in regular checkpoints. So six months at a minimum. Back to, I think you used, you know, the idea of experimenting earlier when you were summarizing something. I said, this is an experiment. We're all wanting to do our best here and we've got some great ideas of how we'll get started, but let's check in in three or six months time and find out what's worked and what hasn't and rejig the charter a bit if necessary. So have a charter, but also revisit it regularly and keep this experimental mindset is really critical as well. Keep an eye on what's working, what's not working, what you want to do differently. Yeah. Yeah. Really good blender. I like this. And that covers the third topic I was going to bring up, which was around the collaboration. Actually, one more question on the collaboration. How much more important in this environment, it always has been important, but how much more important is it to not have single points of failure in your team? Absolutely critical, of course. So particularly in this environment where everybody is off one day a week, whatever day that might be. And if we want to make sure we help people actually enjoy that downtime, making sure that there's at least one other person in the team who knows enough about their role or their customer or whatever it is that they do day in, day out, that kind of 70 or 80% of the questions could be answered by this second person, I think is really critical. And it's critical for this four-day week concept or someone working a more traditional part-time structure. But it's also, as of course you would know and your listeners would all know, so critical for succession planning and so many other things that we don't always do as well as we could. So as well as the benefits of making the part-time or four-day week work, it's got other benefits as well. Very good. A couple of things I'd like to continue to unpack. I want to go a bit black hat here for a moment. Some of the naysayers, some of the people are saying, oh, I really don't like this. And quite often some people have similar views about work from home as well, by the way. So if we put both of those together, there are some leaders out there that are quite negative about it. And one of the things that they bring up is that it actually stifles flexibility and innovation. So, and this is the typical scenario of, let's say it's Friday morning and someone's come up with a great idea idea that needs immediate implementation and the leader goes, okay, 
all right, I want everyone in the boardroom at 11 o'clock and we're going to have a brown brainstorming session around this key topic that's come up uh, very urgently. And they will look around and only 70% of the people in the office or less and they can't find people, et cetera, et cetera. So what about the fact that we now might lose some flexibility in that human interaction in the office where you can have the water cooler conversation or you can have the impromptu meeting that's called for 20 minutes from now and everyone can be there? What's your reaction to that? Absolutely. There is some very valid concerns out there around how do we make sure we keep collaborating and innovating? And we shouldn't be dismissing those concerns because they're really important questions. I do think though sometimes, you know, particularly this question of urgent, something's urgent and we have to do it today. One thing to think about is there will be times when it's urgent, but oftentimes it's not as urgent as we think. So (laughs) just questioning ourselves around, you know, this customer needs us to respond immediately. Actually, does the customer, will they be okay if we get back to the Monday morning, if it's now Friday lunchtime? And and, you know, many times the answer is yes, or we need to solve this problem right now. What happens if we leave it till Monday morning when everybody's back in? So first question, the idea of what's urgent. Another thing is around this idea that to get the best answers or the best solutions or the best innovation, we all need to sit physically in a room together. Research doesn't prove that out. There's a lot of work that's been done over the last couple of years thinking about how do we best collaborate and innovate and come up with ideas. And other methods work just as well, if not better. For example, having a live document where everybody can dump their ideas in as a starting point at a time that suits them before we come together to discuss. So the second thing I'd encourage leaders to question is getting in a room right now for 20 minutes, the best use of everyone's time and the best way to solve the problem. And, you know, maybe we can get started in another way by doing it asynchronously and asking everybody a few key questions and getting them to send a voice memo or put it in the document. But absolutely FaceTime is important. And while some companies Companies going fully remote, even those companies um, Atlassian, for example, are building in points of collaboration and FaceTime on a semi-regular basis, whether that's every quarter and let's come together for a few days at a time. So there is value to be had and importance in getting together face-to-face and some organizations like Atlassian will do it that way. Others will say, let's all agree, no matter who's working, you know, how many hours or when they're working from home at the moment, let's all agree on Tuesdays, for example, we come in and meetings that need to be done collaboratively or where we get the best use of working together, we try and schedule those kinds of meetings on Tuesday when we're all in the office or maybe it's Tuesday and Wednesday for some teams. So thinking about how do we schedule in the collaborative time rather than have a situation where anyone can come to the office whenever they want and it's all sitting there at times with no one else around you and on Zoom all day in the office. So not sure if I quite answered all the little bits of your question there, Mick. That was really good, Belinda, and I'll share my takeaways from that. So the first one is if a curveball does come and it seems urgent, question whether it truly is urgent. What will happen if we don't drop everything and address this? And the second one, I'm going to say that you are saying, what will best serve us? What is the best way to solve this? Don't go to a snap decision of, oh, it must be a in-person meeting. That's the only way to solve this problem. Think about, well, what other ways could we solve this problem? Yeah, I think that's really good, Belinda. And I think in the odd instance that it is really urgent, just I'd add to that, because not to dismiss that some things are very urgent, that might be the odd scenario where you text message the person in your team and say, we really need your input for this. This customer needs an answer in one hour. We don't have the knowledge or the skills to solve it for them. Would you mind jumping on a call with us, you know, the Zoom call or whatever? So there are instances where things are urgent, but they're less often than we think. And that might be the time that we draw on that agreement of let's call this person in, even though it's their day off. Yeah, brilliant. The other model I want 
want to work on two, in fact. Let's go one at a time. So we spoke before about diminishing returns, that when someone's working and slogging away that they have diminishing returns as the hours go past. Why not, instead of a four-day work week, why aren't we talking about a four-hour work day? There's a lot of people saying that at the moment, actually, that a four-day work week doesn't work for everyone. You know, people with kids, for example, might prefer five shorter days to work around school hours. I think it's a valid question. And I think, you know, if you go back to the concept of the four-day week as it was defined by Andrew Barnes and Perpetual Guardian in New Zealand, who came up with the idea and did the first experiment and implemented it successfully, he does say in his book, a four-day week doesn't have to be four days. You can choose to give people flexibility to work differently. So to do this structure of, you know, less hours per day across five days. So I think it's a really valid and important question. And the whole point of flexibility is to help people work in a way that suits their needs and their preferences. And so being too rigid around it has to be four days in this way, I think isn't going to lead to the best outcomes for everyone. So absolutely, we should be questioning that. And if we're thinking about implementing it, think about how can we be flexible with our flexibility to suit different people's needs. All right, well done. That's a good segue into the second question. And I'm curious about this overlapping Venn diagram that we might end up with where, you know, you were saying before that Stephen worked his day off is Thursday and Belinda, her day off is Wednesday and Mick, his day off is Tuesday. And you end up with this complicated colour chart of who's where and what. Do you think there's any merit in an entire team getting together and go, right, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to go four day week, but every Friday is the day off for everyone and we're all working Monday to Thursday. Do you think there's merit in that one. Absolutely. I think it depends on the work your team does. And, you know, if you're a call center, for example, you can't do that if there's customers that are going to be calling in every Friday versus if you're a team of accountants, maybe you can do that because you can talk to your clients and say, actually, we don't work Fridays anymore. And, you know, here's how we're going to manage that. And here's how we're going to make sure that you still get the same service and the same outcomes and everything you need from us working Monday to Thursday. So I think as with everything flexible, different things work for different people and different teams and we should be open to any possibility as long as it serves the people who we work with and for and we can still deliver the same outcomes. That customer service element is critical. How are you going to cover what your customers are expecting of you? Very good. All right. I want to put something on the table here. I'm sure that there's a lot of leaders out there still scratching the head going, oh, no, not convinced this doesn't work, etc. So I want to introduce Parkinson's law. So rather than me say it, I'd love you to go, what role does Parkinson's law play in how we can make this work for people? So Parkinson's law, as I understand it, is work expands to fit the time available. I actually in my book mention that if that's the case, I think work can also contract to fit the time available. Like the opposite must also be true. So that's how I look at it in, is the very short answer to that question. Coming back to this idea that when we're working really long hours and long days, we often just, we're not as productive as we could be anyway. So with less time, we can often get the same amount done. So for all of the leaders out there, and there's going to be exceptions to this, but think about your own experiences of working to deadlines, whether it's your university assignments that you did at midnight the day before or in the workplace, getting things turned in on time, let's say. What we're trying to say here is if you say to your team, right team, we need to get this done and it needs to be done by 5pm on Friday. What we're saying is if you take that same task within reason, as long as you don't go beyond a breaking point of what is humanly possible, if you 
tell people, I need this by Thursday, 3 p.m. Doesn't even have to be 5 p.m. I need this by Thursday, 3 p.m. There's a good chance you're going to get it, right? So if you say Friday, 5 p.m., you're going to get it Friday at 4.59. And if you say Thursday, 3 p.m., you're going to get it Thursday at 2.59. And the quality difference between the two, Parkinson's law tells us it's minimal. It's really marginal differences in quality between those two tasks. So if you can adopt that mindset, it might help you with this level of flexibility that your team are looking for. How does that sit with you, Belinda? Absolutely. And as you said, of course, within reason, you can't give it to them at three or at, you know, 2.45 on Thursday and say, I need it by three. But if you're giving people a reasonable run up and the expectation that you can do it in shorter time, yeah, then I think makes a whole lot of sense. Okay. All right. Got one more on the business front, and then I want to get into the individual mindset. And that is, I want to quiz you about how we can shift our celebrate and reward rituals, right? So if I think about what we started with. I'm going to call it hero complex. I used to work for an organization that people would get annual awards and they'd get award ceremonies, etc. And the people that would get it were often the ones that were working around the clock on a project and somehow managed to get a project across the line, right? the heroes. And yet the person that planned their project perfectly in the first place, executed it flawlessly, never got the accolades because they were the quiet achievers. And yet in reality, the person, the project manager that managed their project to schedule and did a better job of planning and managed their resources better, in my view, did a better job than the hero that was burning the candle at both ends and and got it across the line. How do we need to shift our celebrate and reward mechanisms in a flexible workplace? Great question. I think, first of all, we need to get really clear on what we do value in the new world of work. So whether that's some of the things we've talked about, like collaboration or empowering others to make decisions. So get really clear on what it is that we do want to reward instead. Second of all, like any change in an organization or anything you're trying to do differently, make sure the leaders at the top of the organization are role modeling that and talking about that as a measure of success. So maybe you've got key value around collaboration now. So how do we see leaders? leaders at the top doing this and talking about this and with their teams saying, I was really impressed with how Kate and Bob collaborated the other day rather than I was really impressed with how Kate and Bob worked till midnight. So (laughs) the role modeling piece, absolutely. And then, you know, it might get to that formal awards thing around that. But yeah, getting really clear on what it is and making sure it's role modeled like any change are probably the top two. Nice one. So many great tips for leaders out there in businesses. I want to go now to the individual. And I have to openly admit here, we are on dangerous ground here that this could turn into a live coaching session of myself. Now, part of this has to shift the, the individual mindset. If you're going to do this flexible approach, whether it's four day week, four hour day, whatever you want to call it, it's going to require for some people a mindset shift. Now, I will use myself as the case study. You could say that I've got the ultimate flexible workplace. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm my own boss. I have my own business and I subcontract to other businesses and I decide what work I take and what work I don't take, right? So you'd think, oh, that means I live right near Manly Beach. I must be on the beach every day and I must be having a great time and I must be setting my own hours. And I do, but those hours become not four days a week, Belinda. They become seven days a week. So what's going on with me where I could have the maximum flexibility I could ever want and yet I turn around and find myself working every day? 
So can't answer, of course, exactly what's going on for you personally, Mick, but what I commonly see in these scenarios, and I'm in a similar scenario myself, I run my own business, so I can absolutely relate to the situation. First of all, if you're really interested and excited by the work that you do and you get lots of work in, it can be hard to say no, just rather from the, I feel obligated from, you know, more from the perspective of that sounds really interesting, exciting and exciting. So I'm going to say yes to lots and lots of things that come my way. And so one mindset shift is around, even if your work, you do love it and it's interesting and exciting and everything that comes your way you want to do, how do you get really clear on what you love the most, what best serves where you're trying to take your business and be a bit more discriminating on what you say yes and no to. So that's the first thing. Just that's around managing your own expectations of what you can and should deliver maybe is another way to think about it. So even though I'd love to do these 10 projects that have kind of fallen in my lap in an ideal world when you've got your own business, I'm actually only going to do these five and I'm going to say no to the other five because I could work seven days a week and get them all done or I could work four days a week and just do half. I guess that's the kind of entrepreneur or own business owner's version of that role scoping that I talked about earlier in a more corporate environment. Just a couple of things I'm taking away from that is coming back to prioritization and purpose. So other things I'm saying yes to really align to my purpose. I do get great joy and fulfillment from what I do, by the way. So that helps. But alignment, prioritization to purpose. And you said something interesting. You said can and should. And can and should are two different things, right? So so asking you those questions, just because you can do it doesn't mean that you should do it. Absolutely. And that can be a really hard decision to make sometimes. So for example, earlier last year in 2022, when I was finishing the book, I just needed to buckle down and spend a lot of time on writing and getting the book done. And it meant I had to say no to some paid work that I would have been really excited to deliver and no to a couple of other things. And that was a hard decision to make, but I knew if I didn't do that, I'd end up working till midnight every night and on weekends. And that just wasn't what I wanted to do. So it's kind of what's the best scenario even even though there's some great options on the table. And I think what comes in there, Belinda, is reminding ourselves that we are human beings and we have diminishing returns. So that work that you're doing at midnight, if you're not a night person, I'm a morning person, so I'm not a night person, that work that you're doing at midnight, is it your best work? Probably not, right? So, all right, very good. Now, I feel like I'm going to get really controversial now. And thanks for those individual tips. Now, you mentioned the word robots before, and this is very topical right now as we start 2023. The world is abuzz with talk about chat, GBT, you mentioned about robots can work this kind of approach. Humans can't. There's a lot of people out there that are concerned that the more and more advanced AI gets, the less will be needed. What is your perspective? So what, whilst I'm not an expert in this space, what I see and read is encouraging is that we will always need people to do work that is creative and collaborative and that requires empathy and human interaction. And so I think one thing for everyone to be thinking about in this environment is does my work already, does that description already fit a lot of what I do? And if it doesn't, how can I, how can I shift even just a tiny bit towards building a bit more of that type of work? into my career. And so thinking about what are the skills that we're always, I guess you can never say never, but for the foreseeable future, I'm still going to be needing people to do or the task. And how do I make sure I upskill myself for that or continue doing a lot of that if that already is within the scope of what I do? 
there's an often bandied around saying, apparently it was just a throwaway term and people have just stuck with it. And there's a certain truthiness to it, which is people that are graduating from school this year, 65% of them will end up doing jobs that haven't even been invented yet. So the world is dynamic. It keeps shifting. There's jobs that exist today that certainly did not exist when I graduated from school. In, in fact, even my job didn't exist when I graduated from school when I think about that. So it's about where do I add value? What can I do? The empathy is an important one. How can I use emerging technology to maximize my impact, not see it as a threat? How do I use this emerging technology, which means educating yourself? How do I use this emerging technology to maximize my impact, not diminish my value? How does that sit with you? Yeah, really well. And I love your other point around we don't, yes, some jobs will be going that currently exist, but there's going to be more jobs that will be created around, you know, for example, managing or selling or implementing these new technologies, you know, just one small example. So yeah, makes a lot of sense. Good friend of mine is an AI ethicist. That job didn't certainly did not exist before AI existed, right? So you get the idea. It's a dynamic world. All right. Very good. One more. And we're very on controversial ground here. We just this week have seen another round of tech layoffs in Google and was it Amazon was the other one? Oh, forgive me if it wasn't. And my first comment is my heart goes out to those people that were laid off this week, particularly the way it was handled. It was handled very poorly from what I I can see in the media. So our heart goes out for you. My question to you, Belinda, is flexible working arrangements a way that we could see fewer layoffs in the future, a few mass layoffs, like 10,000 people at a time? Do you think there's something there? Possibly. I think if you survey any organisation, and I've done this in a couple, around how many people would like to work part-time, this is one thing that comes to mind. I've seen in large organisation kind of up to 20, even up to 30% of people put their hand up and say, in an ideal world, I would like to work less hours. And so if you were able to provide those people back to this traditional model of part-time where they get paid less for doing less days a week, you could keep more people in the workforce because you're dividing the same work up between more people who actually prefer to work that way anyway, as opposed to in the pandemic when we saw some companies cutting everyone's hours and their pay. And there's a number of, you know, many, many people out there who can't afford to take the pay cut. So as long as you're doing it within people's preferences, then yes, that could be one way to keep more people in the workforce. All right, brilliant. Thank you, Belinda. So many nuggets there. And thank you for allowing me to go into a couple of quite controversial topics there at the end. So that brings us to an end of the formal part of the interview. I'd love to now go into our rapid round. So these are the same four questions that we ask all of our guests. So Belinda, please tell me what's the one thing you know now that you wish you knew when you were 20? I think I wish I knew when I was 20 that I didn't have to be all things to all people all the time. And that saying no is one of the most important life skills, doing it in a respectful and, you know, a way that builds trust rather than a negative way. Saying no is one of the most important life skills you can build. Brilliant. Love it. What's your favorite book? My favorite book. So my favorite novel is The God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy, which won the Booker Prize many, many years ago, maybe 20 or 30 years ago. One of my favorite work-related books is this one, Humans Are Not Robots, that I mentioned by Robert Hawkins. If you're interested in flexible working, I recommend you read that. I'm definitely going to check that one out. No, I, I have not read that. So that's a great one. What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote is a great one I heard the other day, and I can't remember who to attribute it to, unfortunately, but it, I think it is my new favorite quote. And it's, if you want the best the world has to offer, then offer the world your best. 
Oh, I love it. I don't know where that quote came from. It's the first time I've heard it. I love it. We'll probably try and find the attribution for that one and put it in the show notes. Okay. And finally, how do people get in contact with you if they would like help? They're either a leader who's looking to set up a flexible team and lead a flexible team, or they're individuals like me that are struggling with achieving a flexible lifestyle. How do they find you? Yeah, thanks, Mick. So the best two places to find me are my website, which is belindamorgan.com. Also on the socials, LinkedIn is where I spend the most time. So I'd love to connect with any listeners on LinkedIn who want to just follow what I do and the topic of flexible work more broadly or get in touch directly. Brilliant. And we will put those links in the show notes so that you can find it uh, easily. And I do encourage you to get in contact with Linda. She's got a lot to offer. And of course, grab her book as well. So we'll put the link for her book in the show notes as well. So thank you so much, Belinda. It's been such an honor uh, having you on the show. I've thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. Thank you again for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Mick. Thank you for listening to The Leadership Project at mixbeers.com. A huge call out to Faris Sadek for his video editing of all of our video content and to all of the team at TLP. Joanne Goes On, Gerald Calabo and my amazing wife, Say Spears. I could not do this show without you. Don't forget to subscribe to The Leadership Project YouTube channel where we bring you interesting videos each and every week. And you can follow us on social, particularly on LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Now, in the meantime, please do take care, look out for each other and join us on this journey as we learn together and lead together.